Yeah, but we are going to start in Acts 16 this morning, uh, and then we will go to 1 Thessalonians, because as I was saying uh, a little bit before we started here, that that is the order in which these things happened. And I find that when we're talking about the Holy Spirit and how uh, he revealed himself in the history of the church, I find it helpful to go through things chronologically. Um, our New Testaments are not laid out chronologically. They are laid out by type and then by length. So if you didn't know about this, you start with uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's been the order since about the year 100. That's the only order that they've ever shown up in, and that's topically. Matthew was written to Jews, so it's a wonderful bridge between the Old and New Testament. Uh, Mark is essentially a sermon of Peter's that his disciple, John Mark, wrote down. And Luke is a later history by a Greek man named Luke. Uh, and then John is a very, very late in coming gospel that is written to a broad audience in order to evangelize everyone, which is why sharing gospels of John is a habit that has been part of the history of the church for about 1900 years. Um, but when you get to the epistles, obviously the book of Acts is a continuation of the story of Luke. When you get to the epistles, all the letters, they're separated out by author and then by length. So Romans is first because it's Paul and it's the longest letter he wrote, followed by First and Second Corinthians, which are the second longest ones he wrote, followed by Galatians, Philippians, Ephes- or, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, and then his personal letter to Philemon. Uh, that's all by descending order and length. That's it. There's nothing more complicated than that to that. And then for the general epistles, the longest one is Hebrews. So that's first. Then James. So that's next. Then first and second Peter, because those are shorter than James. And then first, second, third John, which are extremely short. Second and third John are. And then Jude, which is the shortest of all. And then we get to a completely different thing, Revelation, which is just all on its own, a very, very unique book. So the way we have laid out the New Testament is not helpful to anyone. It just isn't. Uh, And so when we're talking about a walkthrough of Scripture, even if you read through the Bible um, and you want to get a, a feel for how things unfolded for the early church, reading through it chronologically or studying through it chronologically is much more helpful. Um, like, for instance, when we came to the Council of Jerusalem, knowing that after the Council of Jerusalem, James and Galatians are both written as an answer to that, gives us a perspective on those books that you would just completely miss otherwise. Um, we're going to be in Acts 16, and you see, uh, you see uh, Paul interacting uh, with the leading of the Holy Spirit in supernatural ways. This is not a gut feeling he has. This is the Holy Spirit telling him certain things. Um, that uh, the Spirit sometimes instructs, sometimes forbids. We will see this kind of language uh, in the book of Acts. And then after Acts 16, he goes to Thessalonica and founds a church there and then immediately writes two letters to them, First and Second Thessalonians. And so we're going to be in First Thessalonians this morning uh, after we finish Acts 16. So uh, seeing the, the unfolding of these things, especially when we're seeking to understand what the Holy Spirit was doing, is enormously helpful because otherwise... We don't really understand what's going on in Thessalonica until we get to First and Second Thessalonians, and that's after all these late books like Romans and Philippians and Colossians and Ephesians, um, which talk about completely different aspects and are written uh, a little bit later on and dealing with different issues. Because by the time 
these are being written, the Holy Spirit's role is different in different areas. And we're going to see this going forward, that the way that the Holy Spirit interacts with different cities is one of the, one of the massive, strange aspects about the end of the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit does absolutely remarkable things in the city of Ephesus. Uh, like, stuff that you never see anywhere else. Yes, sir? I understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. When was the New Testament laid out in the format it was? Because to me, from what you're saying, uh, it, it, if it doesn't teach us properly what you're saying, because you don't know certain things, right? why would they ever lay it out like this? I mean, whoever, uh, was this done in the 600s or... So the layout or the order of them um, really had to do with uh, primacy and importance and, and clarity, uh, what issues they were dealing with then. What, what we don't, so we're so used to books, a whole bounded copy of the Bible, right? That's not how the Old Testament worked and that's not how the New Testament worked for the first couple hundred years. There would be scrolls or there'd be individual books. And so you, wouldn't, you would have, like, one of the most common ones we, we dig up and see is the Gospel of John. Just the Gospel of John, right? And if you're in the Old Testament era, you would have scrolls. Like, you actually would see Jesus goes into the synagogue and he requests Isaiah. He's not requesting a whole Bible. Codices like that, books, did not exist. They had individual pamphlets that were... Here's, um, like in the Old Testament, for instance, because they didn't want a bunch of tiny scrolls, they combined all the minor prophets together into what's called the writing, uh, the, the, the Twelve, which is the Twelve uh, Minor Prophets. It was all on a single scroll. So if you wanted to read from Obadiah, you would say, you know, give me the scroll of the Twelve. Uh, you know, and, but like, for instance, Isaiah is too long for a normal scroll, so it's typically divided up amongst two. Uh, and so... When we talk about the order of the Bible, we're not talking about something original to it. We're talking about something that we put on top of it because we wanted to bind it all together into a single book. So if you want to do it like the early church actually did it, you can actually buy these. Buy a Bible that has all 66 books completely separate from one another. Just little thin books. And you can pull them out and you go, boom, here's 1 Thessalonians, right? So the only reason that we put it the way we do uh, had to do with the invention of bound books. And so when we bound the books up, we were like, well, how do we order this? And the first thing that makes sense is, well, we'll do it by author. So all of Paul's writings go together, then Peter's writings go together, and all of John's writings go together uh, as far as the epistles are concerned. And then the next thing that had to do with it really determined from a history of scrolls is length. And so that's, that's the only reason we laid out the New Testament in that order. So you ask, when did that happen? Uh, the invention of books and the use for it, in fact, the word Bible just means the book. Um, the invention of that and the layout of it in that manner, in an actual ordered way, didn't happen until the 300s. But once it happened, it was set. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Chronological Study Bible was, uh, was published back in the 90s. Uh, which is really interesting and helpful. Um, but again, there's a couple of them that you have to make guesses on. Like some of the prophets, we're not entirely sure about where they land. And so uh, there's a resistance, and I think a healthy one, to saying, boom, Joel is absolutely in the 800s. There's some good case for it to be made in the 500s too. 
we know it's one or the other. We know it's not the 600s, but it's, it's hard to just publish a Bible and go, this is the order in which it happened, because then there's more danger to it. And so it, it really falls to those who are teaching to make it clear as we go forward. Uh, and it's also a tradition, a very, very long tradition for the way it's laid out. Um, yeah, but no, there's nothing inspired about the order of the books in the New Testament or the Old. You chop them up. Correct. Right. And then you also have to make another call. Do we chop them up based on what the narrative is talking about or the publishing date of the book? Right? right? Gospel of John, written in most likely about mid-80s. But the topics that it talks about, one are ancient, in the beginning was the word, and then all the way through the resurrection of Christ. So when you open up, now I've seen somebody do this. It's not a published thing, but I've seen somebody do it. Um, they have the opening of Genesis, and then they skip forward and grab a couple of verses from John and put that there too. Say so not only in the beginning, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word. And then there's other verses that they'll take and, you know, do this, um, uh, the heavens were of old, and you know, so you can chop up everything. That's wrong. I don't believe you can. I don't believe you should do that. I believe the books should be taken as they are. Um, but as you're walking through it, to to go from Acts to the other, so it, it really comes down to we have to do work to understand this. We, it, there's no there's no one right way to do it. Um, yeah. You had another question or? They do do that. They do do that. So like the book of Chronicles will cover the entire history from the end of the book of Judges all the way through to the captivity uh, of Babylon. Yeah, so like for... Right, so that's kind of the issue, is a book like First and Second Chronicles, uh, you're going to have to chop it all up. And, and not only that, if you've read through this before, you'll know that First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, those four books tell the same story as First and Second Chronicles, and so uh, like I've used a chronological read through the whole Bible before, and there's many times where you read the story in First Kings, and then you go over to Second Chronicles, and, the, and it's almost word for word the same story because the chronicler had a purpose. Um, I don't. I'm not saying we we lay out our Bibles like that. I think that would be a mistake because the Book of Chronicles is meant to be read as a whole. Unless your goal is to come through and understand the history of it, and then you got to read it with some of the prophets sprinkled throughout. So, like, there's mention of Jonah and Obadiah uh, and others inside the text, and so like a chronological read through will take a break from you know Second Chronicles and go read Jonah real quick because that's what was happening at that moment, um, and it helps to understand and give breadth to the history. But um, yeah, as far as for laying out the scriptures, there's no one right way to do it. Um, are you reading it? Uh, God uses it in the midst of our ignorance just fine. We don't have to understand everything about that. But I find it helpful when we're teaching on a specific instance or a specific theological point or a specific person like the Holy Spirit to, to do it as chronological as possible because it was time sensitive in the way he uh, essentially rolled himself out. 
Um, so it's it it makes more sense to us, you know, references that we're going to come to in First Thessalonians that talk about don't quench the spirit. Well, you can't just apply that everywhere willy-nilly. What was going on at the time? What was happening that that's a severe possibility, right? Because then it talks about these prophecies that the Holy Spirit's giving. Is that something we should expect at all points? Or is that something very unique that was going on in Thessalonica? Because it was, right? And so we got to take everything in its context, and it makes it much much clearer what's going on in the, in the texts, especially when we're studying something like the Holy Spirit. Okay. Acts 16. So we went through the book of Galatians and saw Paul's uh, answer after the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, remarkable answer, uh, a remarkable book, very sarcastic, uh, very frustrated, um, I dare I say angry and insulting, um, the book of Galatians. And so we come back to the book of uh, Acts and we come to Paul and Silas uh, and Timothy. They are looking to carry on. And again, you have someone like Timothy is a fascinating character as well because he is the son of a Jewish woman and a Greek father. Uh, bearing a Greek name, and so it's it's kind of an interesting case study and uh, how the church is going to continue to go on, uh, intermixed Greek and Jewish. Um, so let's pick up there. Verse 1, Acts 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in this place. Stop. Didn't Paul just write an entire book about circumcision? He just wrote an entire book about how Gentiles do not need to be circumcised and if you hope in circumcision that you are cut off from Christ. Why in the very same year does he do this with Timothy? You see how reading them in order makes you go, wait, <laughs> helps you understand a little bit. What's going on? Helps us clarify, doesn't it? Because there has to be some understanding because Paul is the same person who wrote Galatians the same year that he's telling Timothy he ought to be circumcised. Same year, same time. Yeah, so he actually starts to tell the reason. So there is, there is a difference between doing something so that God will be pleased with me in the gospel and doing something as a ministry decision for the sake of the weak consciences of others. Yep, yep. And in order to minister to Jews, in order for them to actually hear the gospel, they will not listen to an uncircumcised man. And so for Timothy to make this decision uh, and for Paul to recommend it means that we're not talking about a, a salvific issue for Timothy. We're talking about a ministry decision. I'm going to set aside my freedom not to do that for the sake of preaching the gospel to those who will not listen to me otherwise. You see that? And if, if you weren't aware that the book of Galatians was written literally two verses before that, you kind of go... Maybe this is at a time where Paul didn't figure it out. And I've actually heard somebody teach it that way. Well, he hadn't gotten to where Galatians was yet. And it's like, first of all, 
the chapter before this in the book of Acts just dealt with the issue of circumcision. So we're not talking about gospel. We're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about a decision in ministry. For instance, if, um, uh, as was the case uh, at a church I was at before, people had um, a, a, a moral quandary about playing, play, playing cards that had faces on them, right? Uh, so, you, you know, like just regular bicycle cards, ace through king, right? Um, can I do that as a Christian if I don't have a conscience issue about it? Not much in the scripture, right? Can I do this if I don't have a conscience issue? Yes, I can. Am I going to bring that to church? Knowing that there's people that have issue with that? No. I'm not going to flaunt my freedom in front of them. That's insane. And so a ministry decision of mine would be to lay aside my freedom for the sake of my brother. Why? Not because I'm required to. Not because God is pleased when I do this. But because I love my brother. I don't want to violate his conscience. I don't want to encourage him to do something he ain't okay with. Even if I know it's innocuous and unhelpful. I don't want to help train this idea that we can just go out and violate our consciences. Right? And so we make a ministry decision that we are not the exact same everywhere we go. We keep the scruples of others in mind and we do not flaunt our freedoms in front of one another. And this is, this is exactly what Paul is doing with Timothy here. He was like, in order to preach the gospel to Jewish people that are living in the middle of Greek lands, you might want to be circumcised. Now, that's not going to make you a part of the nation of Israel. That's not going to save you. That's not Christ plus circumcision. It's none of these things. Read the book of Galatians, Timothy, if you want to know that. But it would still be good. Interesting, interesting passage. So that's the setting that we're at here. Verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. He took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was Greek. As they went through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily. Now, here's the fascinating thing. They went through the regions of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they come to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to. Now, here's an interesting thing. Why do you suppose we're all of a sudden to where the Spirit is basically driving them like a car? Can't go here? Don't go there? That's unusual, isn't it? Why do you suppose? Did the people in Asia need to hear the gospel? Yeah. How about the people in Bithynia? Did they need to hear the gospel? Yeah. Oh no, you'll see in the coming <laughs> you'll see in the coming chapters that has nothing to do with their safety, not at all. In fact, we'll see when we get towards the uh, towards the beginning of the uh, the twenties chapters in the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit, before Paul enters a city, takes him aside and tells him how much he's going to have to suffer, and then tells him to go in. Oh, and by the way, no one's going to listen to you, and you're going to get stoned here. Off you go. <laughs> you know, brutal stuff. So no, it has nothing to do with their safety. I mean, Asia is a huge reference here. Uh, Asia Minor, most likely, we're talking about, uh, you know, Damascus area, Syria, and things like this. Isn't the Holy Spirit trying to just get the word out everywhere willy-nilly? Or do you suppose maybe he has a plan in mind? 
Yeah. And that's exactly what we're dealing with. Oh, and by the way, is it the apostles who are in the driver's seat? Or the God? Here's the, here's the remarkable thing I think that the church begins to realize is for the apostles, they had explicit directions. Hey, I want to go to Macedonia. No. Oh, okay. Uh, hey, I want to go to, uh, I want to go to Bithynia. No. I'm not going to let you. Uh, and, and in these cases, explicitly stated. Why? Not because God doesn't have people he's saving there, but because that was not the role of Timothy, Paul, and Silas. He had purpose for them. That was different. Now, if you were expecting the Holy Spirit to interact this way with you about decisions in your life here in 2023, you're going to be very disappointed. Because going out and laying out a fleece in your front yard and, um, and, and trying all of these things to make them normative in your life is not the reason they're here in Scripture. They're here in Scripture to express that God has a plan, a purpose, and he will use any means to ensure that his purpose and plan work out. He will do them. You say, well, what if I'm not aware of what his purpose and plan is? Well, it's not an if. You're not. Um, and you can reason all you want that Asia needs the gospel, but if God's purpose for you is to not go to Asia, he will ensure that outcome one way or another. And this is, this is one of the great takeaways from this is that God is actually the one in charge of evangelism and the, the preaching of the gospel throughout the entire world. And that's the takeaway for the church. Just because you have the ability to do something, like the apostles here had the ability to speak in tongues. They could literally go to any country and just start speaking. And if the Holy Spirit had in mind to save everyone, they would all be able to hear them in their own tongue. That's, that's a very amazing thing. Let's go to Syria. I don't, even have to, I don't even have to learn the local dialect. Everyone will not even just hear me in Latin, our common tongue, or in Greek, our, our worldwide common tongue. I can just literally speak, and they will hear me in whatever local dialect they know. They will hear me in Bithynian or in Phrygian. Remarkable stuff. But here we start to realize that in the middle of how God is going to work with everything, he is going to ensure that his gospel goes out according to his plan, in his way, in his time. And so most of the prayers of the church become, Lord, make us patient for your timing. Lord, make us sensitive to um, what things you would have us do rather than what things we would desire to do. Same goes for the life of the church. Yeah. And it doesn't line up with us. And, and I think this is one of the great important takeaways from this. These are the apostles. It is not immoral of them to have wanted a direction other than what God was going to lead them to. Their desire to go to Asia was good. Was it right? No. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's where we get tripped up all the time. What is the exact right thing for me to do with my life? Follow the Lord and depend on him. I promise he will ensure its outcome. You do not have to sit here and understand everything. And as they continue their journey, they're probably questioning, why did we even go there? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, when you read through, you're Well, think about it from the modern perspective, right? They go, uh, they go through Lydia's house, and then uh, instead of going to Asia, they ended up going somewhere else. Uh, to Macedonia, and they immediately get arrested and go to prison. Yep. From the modern perspective, what would we say? 
you guys had a desire to go to Asia, you didn't fulfill that call, and God's punishing you by putting you in prison. Are we wrong? Absolutely, 100%. It was God's purpose for them not to go to Asia, but to go to prison. And, and the book of Acts, Luke does this with the church to, one, humble us, and two, make us to depend on God regardless of circumstances. Outcomes does not equal faithfulness. It doesn't work like that. Faithfulness is faithfulness. If, if God has us to do something by special revelation, we ought to do it, whether it makes sense to us or not. You say, well, you know, God's never spoken audibly to me before. Yes, he has. Do you hear his word read? Does he tell you things in his word that you do not agree with and you do not desire to do? That is God speaking audibly to you, straight up. You say, well, I don't, I would really rather the information that if God wants me to be a missionary to Papua New Guinea or something like that, that he like mystically tells me personally that, not going to happen. God doesn't work like that anymore. This was a very unique time. You say, well, then how do I make decisions like this? Seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God, and he will bring about your righteousness. It's not for you to understand the ins and outs of Papua New Guinea. It's not for you to understand whether or not you can save enough money and make it work. Wherever your life goes, keep your eyes on God. He will direct your paths. This, is, this has been the teaching, not just to the New Testament church, this has been the teaching for all time. You say, well, I want to know exactly what God would have of me. Seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. You say, well, I want to know exactly what the plan is. No, you don't. You do not want to know your future. Right. If God told me 15 years ago where I would be today, uh, I would have one of two reactions. One, run. Or two, try to make it happen my way. And it would be horrible. Because I'd try to force it, or I'd try to avoid it. But I would never just rest that God has the future and does what is right. Regardless of all of the sufferings it involves, regardless of all of the uh, moral quandaries it involves, regardless of all of the frustrations and the difficulties of life, we would like to avoid them sometimes, right? Can you think of something in your life that if you knew it was coming, you would seek to avoid with any power you had? Yep. But it was good of us to walk through it. Why? Because the Lord brought us there. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And there's some things we only learn firsthand. And here's, here's, the, here's the great aspect of this. That is why, as we grow in the Lord, it depends on faith. We entrust our future and our growth to the Lord. He will bring it about. Not in the way you prefer, I promise. That is not an accident. That's a feature of belonging to the Lord. It's not a bug. It's a feature. God had it in mind to save the Philippian jailer. How else was it going to happen? Right. And even Lydia's household. Yep. She, you know, she yep. it seemed to be she was a well known woman in the in the area. Mm-hmm. And how to use her in the household to help spread the gospel. Right. So that was the point there as well. Paul and Silas are in Philippi. They 
uh, end up being jailed after the story of Lydia's household. The whole story of them singing hymns while they're in prison because, again, having the knowledge behind you that God brought you to Philippi to be jailed, are you sitting there despondent? Or are you going, yeah, I know why we're here. I don't know exactly the outcome, but I know I'm going to sing praises to God here. And what does God do in that jail? Huge earthquake. And not a natural earthquake, because natural earthquakes don't cause chains to come unloosed from prisoners' arms. All the doors opened. (laughs) Everyone's bonds were unfastened. The Philippian jailer is having the worst day of his life. Verse 27, the jailer woke. (laughs) Wasn't supposed to be sleeping. And saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword out and was about to kill himself. Supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and here we have one of the greatest statements. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Guy was about to commit suicide. Now he wants to know what makes prisoners not only sing hymns while they are unjustly imprisoned, What makes them stay when the doors open? You have something I don't have. What must they do? Correct. Yep. And so here, Paul and Silas, they don't just spell out to him, okay, well, you know, what's messed up in your life? Let's, let's, Let's lay it all out. Let's make everything good. No, what do they say? Verse 31, they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. How do they know that? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question. You're not saved by your father coming to Christ. How do they know? You got it. The Lord was doing remarkable things through the apostles and telling them remarkable things. I would not be so surprised if the Holy Spirit told Paul and Silas why they were going to prison, and that the jailer was going to be there. And by the way, when you get loose, sit and wait. And his household will become Christians too. Just go to prison, which involves beatings, which involves all sorts of frustrations. I mean, you're talking about in the dark. Remember, the jailer had to bring in lights. Everyone's just in the pitch dark, just singing hymns. And the Lord does all of this. And the man just asks, how can I be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus. Uh, Actually, the structure of Greek is better to say believe on the Lord Jesus. It's a better use of that word. Uh, And you will be saved, you and your household. It's not just going to be you. I would argue that the Lord showed him ahead of time that this outcome would be the reality of it. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. It means he brought all the prisoners home. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into this house and set food before them. He rejoiced along with his entire household that they had all believed in God. By the way, that also 
eliminates this from the, uh, you know, he had an infant at home and infant baptism is taught in scripture. No, no, no. They all believed. They all heard the word. They were all baptized and they all rejoiced. Babies don't do that. So you can't use that. And that phrase is used often, you and your household. It's not what it's teaching here. It's teaching that we're going to come to your house. We're going to preach the word. You're all going to believe. You're all going to be baptized. and You're all going to rejoice in the word of the Lord. That's just a remarkable testament for what was going on. Um, after that, Paul and Silas go to Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a fascinating place. Um, Thessalonica is a, a place that Paul and Silas were for three weeks. And they founded a church there that was solid and strong uh, early on like that. I mean, Paul spent 18 months in Corinth and they couldn't figure out their, their, their head from their butt. With, with regards to theology or proper practice or anything. The, the, the way that Corinth was so messed up in their understanding, Paul spent so much time with them. Thessalonica, he was there for three weeks, founded a church, and they were pretty mature and healthy from, uh, from day one. Um, but they had concerns about things, and Paul writes to them about that soon after he was there. And so turn to 1 Thessalonians, which is written right at the same time and soon thereafter of Acts 17. So all that is going on at the time that 1 Thessalonians is being written. Things are happening in the church that people cannot account for in any natural way. It is affecting everything. Paul and Silas know about the salvation of people before it happens. You and I are not privy to that level of information, right? How much easier would evangelism be if right before you evangelize someone, God says, oh, by the way, not only is that person going to be saved, but so are the 18 people that live in his house. Boy, you want to talk about preaching with boldness? No problem. Uh, I'm not even going to add any tricks, any accoutrements. I'm just going to tell you straight up, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Right? Wouldn't that take from us all the gimmicks and all the tricks and all of the emotional appeals and everything else? And it would just have us preach the gospel boldly. That's exactly how the Holy Spirit is having the church start out. And the church should never have ever gone away from that. We cannot have people saved and we cannot focus our, our efforts on evangelism based only on emotional appeal or based on just appeal to the, to the reason of people and try to like argue them into being Christians, you know, and showing them that God is real based on this philosophical that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. We can explain what that means. We can show them who Christ is. We can show them the death, burial, and resurrection. We can show them all of these other things. And so should we. To make it clear what it means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Saved from what? Saved from who? Like We can define all of these things. That's good. But we should not venture away from that and thinking that it, that it depends on us in order to save somebody. It doesn't. As we are learning right here, it depends on God who will save his people and sometimes he makes it clear how he's going to do that, but the vast majority of the time he doesn't. He just uses our faithfulness and our failures to bring about his purposes. It's remarkable. First Thessalonians. You ever wonder why First Thessalonians is not just written by Paul, but also Silas and Timothy? It's because they're traveling through Philippi and Thessalonica together. So the book of First Thessalonians starts just like the story of Acts 16 is happening. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. 
to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Now, this is really early on. Really early on. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that, that's a remarkable way to start off a, a, a letter. If you're going to get a letter from an apostle, that's kind of the one you want to receive. You know, there's, there's other ways to go, and I wouldn't recommend them. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because why? Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. There he's referring to Acts 17. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. By the way, Macedonia is where they were being called while they're doing this. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. <laughs> this, is, this is the letter you want to receive. You don't want the one from Galatia. You want this one to be sent to you. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That is an introduction. That is Paul and Silas and Timothy writing back to this church after they spent a few weeks with them and their report of them later on came back to them and going, guys, they're just continuing in the faith. They love the gospel. They've left their idols behind and everything else from their culture, and they're just waiting for Christ. And their faithfulness has been known to all. But what does he say that their certainty is based in, in verses 5 and 6, if you missed it? Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Again, everything we read in the book of John, the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus, are made manifest to those whom he is calling. In the sermon this morning is, My sheep hear my voice. There is a certain interaction that the people that God is saving have when they hear the revelation of the Lord, or when they see the actions of God. And so when we, when we share the gospel, both should be on display. The words of God and the works of God. You say, well, where are the works of God? Creation, scripture, our lives, our churches. Who we were and who God has made us into. The fruits of the Spirit. Not by taking credit for these things and saying, look, I once was bad, but now I'm good. No, that's not the gospel. I once was me, I'm still me, and because of the grace of God, look at what's been added to my life. And I am grateful for these things that I would never have done on my own. Patience, kindness, and goodness, faith, and gentleness, and self-control. These things are not me. New creation. You say, wow, oh man, are you still, you got all this stuff going on in your head? Don't you want to lash out? Don't you want to be angry? Sometimes, because I'm still me. Sometimes, but there's a new law inside, something else. 
the works of Christ, the miracles, the undeniable resurrection. These are the works of God. These should be a part of how we proclaim the gospel. It's why we work through the scriptures all the time as Christians, especially when we join together in communal worship. We hear the word of God, we see the works of God, and we praise him for both because both bring faith into the lives of his people. And he's focusing on it right here in verse 5. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The result of it was that the people in Thessalonica were encouraged, not only because of the word of Christ, which is remarkable, and hearing comes by, or faith comes by hearing the word of God. That is true. Uh, but it is not just the word of God saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is also saying, for he is going to destroy the world and judge the world by righteousness. He's already risen Christ from the dead to give full account of this. That is the work of God. Verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Not of Paul, Silas, and Timothy in their sinful stuff, but in their good works. It's okay to find somebody who has a greater faith in you and to imitate their works, but only to imitate their faith in so much as they follow Christ. And so what he said here is ultimately in verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. The Greek word for imitators is uh, where we get our word mimic, mime. I'm going to, when I see God moving, when I see God having this attitude or this desire, I'm going to follow that. Now, the application of that, you'll probably hear me pray often enough. God, help us to love what you love and to hate what you hate. Because our actions come from our desires. And at the root of it, our problem, and this is what Jesus was always focused on, our problem is not our actions are bad, it's our desires are aberrant. God, help us to love what you love, to hate what you hate, to speak when you speak, and to be silent when you are silent. We want to follow the Lord. We want to imitate him. We don't want to imitate him as fearful slaves, but as Ephesians 5.1 says, we want to imitate him as beloved children. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Look at that back and forth. You received the word, and it afflicted you, and it brought about joy. Who is going to set their mind out for affliction? Boy, I can't wait. You know, that's what I pray for this week, right? I really, really, really hope a great deal of suffering comes my way on Tuesday morning. Who prays for that? No? What do we pray for? Yeah, we want everything to go smooth. Yeah. Maybe, perhaps, God bring about the week you have intended for me. Make me to interact with it with your desires rather than mine. There's nothing like thanking God for the sufferings while you're in them, too. And this prepares our heart for that. When something comes along our path that seeks to unsettle us or seeks to overtake our mind, and we go, I would rather suffer anything else than this. There is, there is a specific blessing to be able to thank God for times of difficulty. And this is exactly what Paul is addressing here. He says, you received the word with much affliction, and it resulted in the joy of the Holy Spirit. By the way, that's not the joy of just having mind over matter. 
It's not something that's natural. It doesn't make any sense as far as just the natural way of life. If you are afflicted in the natural order, you should be lamenting and nothing more because something horrible befell you. And yet, he says here, what was the result? The Holy Spirit works joy where affliction takes over. It does. Now, we know the Holy Spirit to be the life giver because one, we know our scriptures and two, we know the Holy Spirit. What about joy as life-giving in the midst of affliction? What's the connection? We're not joyful just so we have a better experience. It's so that we have an abundant life. Sufferings will come. And no matter how bad you think it is, it can very well get worse. And it's not even just the practical aspect of this either. There is a right way for Christians to face suffering. And there are wrong ways aplenty. And the right way is with gratitude and with joy. You say, well, I don't have what it takes to do that. Good. That's the first step. Abundantly, right? So life in itself is joyful if you're in that, but the abundance of it, right. what he has to offer is even more. Right. Jesus, at a later point, expands on that idea where he says, my peace I'm going to leave with you. It's not a peace that comes from the world. It's not the kind of peace that the world gives right. because the peace that the world gives disappears with the next war. And some of that you don't even understand how much that peace is going to be like. No. so far more what God gives us, you know. Right. And what was like you talked about before about salvation. Right. More to it than just words. Correct. You know, there, there's everything to it. It, it, is, it. it changes the way that you interact with every aspect of creation. Yes. I, I, have, I have seen people that have grown in the Lord for decades that are unsettled by the smallest of events. And I have seen young Christians be able to endure some of the harshest events in their lives without wavering in their view of Christ. This is not a matter of natural practice. These are gifts. And they are not given in the same measure to every Christian. They just aren't. Some Christians are gifted with, a, with an unnatural peace about life. They are. And this is not a natural knack they had before they were Christians. This is something that came about when they became Christians. And, and this is something that Paul is going to write about, not only here on the communal aspect, but he's going to write about individually in the next books uh, that come uh, after Acts 18, and that is First and Second Corinthians. Because he's going to write there about the gifts of the Holy Spirit to each Christian. And they are myriad. And there's not an exhaustive list. It is everything that pushes the church onto life and service to one another. It's why there's the church. It's why God is not just saving individuals and saying, okay, that's it. You, you, in fact, so much that the Holy Spirit says, my gifts, if they are not used in service towards other Christians, you shouldn't have the gifts. Every single one of them is defined by service to each other. Which means if you're flaunting gifts or something like this, or flaunting freedoms, you are holding it wrongly. Even if you're eating meat offered to idols and going, I know idols are nothing, I can do this, doesn't do anything. He's like, 
guys, wouldn't you rather be vegetarians? And, and you look at that and go, no. It says, what if in loving your brother, you needed to become a vegetarian? You'll actually talk about this. And, and you sit there and go, why would I even resist that? Why is meat more important to me than my brother? And, and he, he makes you deal with that difficulty head on. Yeah. It just shows them their whole path. Yep. It's no different. Yep. And that's the thing. that Scripture will come and talk to us straight up. It's not lacking in clarity. It's not that we can't understand what's in there. Sometimes it takes work. Peter will even write about Paul's writings and say, he's like, some things in there are just hard to understand. It takes a lot of work. They could have fled. Yep. Yep. And they said, no. Yeah. Yeah, that's they can set up properly. And once they found out they're Romans, right? Yep. So Yeah. It it is remarkable stuff because what, what the Holy Spirit is doing is teaching the church what it's going to have to be. Because the church does not know yet that there's an entire age of history in front of them. They are anticipating Christ to return at any moment. Right? In fact, the book of 1 Thessalonians, one of the concerns that this church had was Christians that were dying before Jesus' return. It's just like, I thought Jesus was supposed to be coming back. It's been like 30 years. And, and there's Christians that are being saved. Now, this is a very young church. So this is the first time they've ever had this question. They're all saved, and then they're all waiting for the return of the Lord, as he had said in chapter 1. And then Christians start dying. Are they going to miss out on the return of Christ? And, and that's a, I love that concern because one, it's so childish and ignorant, but it's also loving and caring. They didn't want them to miss out on it. And that is the, that is the background of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which is where Paul will talk to them about the fact that they're not going to miss out on the resurrection. In fact, you can't really rise from the dead if you don't die first. <laughs> so he's just, he's talking to them about it in very calming terms. He's like, don't, worry about this. It is okay. The Lord knows his own. It's not, it's not a problem like this. Um, and, and that whole position in there, he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, he's like, I don't want you to be uninformed, right, about those who have fallen asleep. Don't, don't, don't worry about that. Um, I don't want you to grieve as others who don't have any hope. You have hope. You see those brothers and sisters of yours that are dying and going into the ground? Yeah. You should have hope while seeing that. And, and that settles them to think about it from a different perspective. He's like, no, 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 no. You can grieve. Absolutely, and you ought. And it's good because death is the enemy. But there's a special type of grieving for the Christian on behalf of another Christian. It's with hope. We believe, and so he goes back to the gospel, verse 14. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again... Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The entire salvation story is based on resurrection. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that those who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, it says if you guys live to the end of this age, and you're still here, it's actually you who is the weird one out, not the person in the ground. Those who are, what does he say here? We declare to you by word from the Lord 
uh, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we won't even precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, the resurrection is going to come first. He's going to raise all of them from the dead, and then he's going to deal with us because we're the odd ones out, not them. It's actually part of the plan that death happens and then the resurrection. So they will rise from the dead, right? What does he say? A really common quoted passage here. Uh, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, uh, and the dead in Christ will rise first. He's like, they're not missing out. They're actually going to beat us. Don't worry about that. They've died. God will raise them from the dead. This is what happens at the end of the age. Then we who are alive... Those who are Christians at the very end, will, uh, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we will always be with them. Encourage one another. Don't, don't look at those who are going to the ground with hopelessness. They're actually going to beat us. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. He had a very unique relationship with the Lord um, with regards to these things. And he spent three years in the desert of Arabia being taught by the Lord how much he was going to have to suffer. And he was being taught by the Lord the aspects of the church and everything else that was going to have to go with it. Um, The church would have not happened without the apostles. And so Christ ensured that the apostles were able to pass on this message. Um, that's why there's no apostles today. We have the scriptures. There's no, no need for apostles today. Uh, or prophets. Uh, or even, as it was originally, evangelists in that list. So the apostles spent three years after he got saved, right? Mm-hmm. Right? So when the scale fell off, it was gone, right? Yeah. Right. Yep. When God told him about all of this and how he knew, we don't know. Uh, he makes mention of certain aspects uh, of what his experience was that break all of our understandings. Um, he talks about being caught up to the third heaven um, and experiencing things that he can't talk about, uh, seeing things he can't write about, hearing things he can't say. Uh, so who knows, honestly, what it is. And in fact, uh, he actually makes me- reference to the fact that Uh, the revelations that were being given to him were so pride-inducing that the Lord gave him a thorn in the flesh, whatever that is, that keeps him humble. I do not believe it is bad eyesight. That doesn't keep one humble. I believe it is a struggle his entire life that he could not overcome. And I don't know what it would be. But what, what he was given maintained humility in the midst of perhaps the most pride-inducing revelations and he writes about this exactly it was like god gave me a thorn in the flesh specifically so that i wouldn't become proud with the revelations he was giving uh and he's like i even prayed for it to go away which i think is an admission of of uh faithlessness to be perfectly honest because he knew why it was given to him and he knew he had the apostolic power to do all sorts of things and he was like I'm going to pray that this goes away. I'm going to make it go away. I think it was a suffering of proportions that's unknown to us. And he says, I prayed one time, two times, three times. The Lord says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. You're keeping this. And he's like, okay. He said, I haven't prayed for it since. That's just remarkable stuff, right? Because that, you know, seeing it as, oh, maybe it was bad eyesight. 
is a terrible interpretation of it, and I think it misses how grueling it was for him. Because bad eyesight doesn't keep you from pride. I think it was, I think it was something far more severe in his life that was apparent to all everywhere he went. Who knows? But here, as he has addressed other places, he did have the revelation from the Lord, and the Lord had it in his mind to tell his church about these things. And so you say, well, you know, how does he tell his church about these things? He just did. You just heard his word read. God ensured that his word was preserved throughout all of history, that the people in Thessalonica had a concern about their brothers and sisters, so that Paul had opportunity to explain these things, and those things were copied down, written, made copies of, preserved throughout history, and you and I get to read them this morning. God had in his mind before the world was that we would hear this and be encouraged when our brothers and sisters die as well. It's not a good thing that people die, but there is hope in the middle of it. And I think there is a grave misunderstanding in the church to look at death as a good thing. It isn't. Death is the enemy. There's hope yet. We were meant to live forever. And we will one day live forever. But not as sinful, fallen people. Correct. That doesn't make it good. That makes death part of the answer. But death is still the enemy. I mean, think of the distance that happens between you and someone who dies. I miss somebody when I won't see them for a few months. Now I'm going to live my whole life and never see them again. That's a long time. That, that's a mournful thing. It's a break of relationship and fellowship that we're not supposed to have to experience and endure. And yet, here it is. So it is not a good thing. It is for that person. Um, but it would not be a good thing if the resurrection was not the hope. Like, our great hope is not to be a disembodied spirit in heaven. That's not our great hope. The great hope is resurrection. That we will live physically and spiritually with our God forever and ever on the new heavens and new earth. Um, and, and because our society is so given over to Gnosticism, we think that our ultimate self is our spiritual self rather than this physical body. But Paul makes very clear to us, and we're going to walk through this when we come to 1 Corinthians in like just one chapter, where he says, you know, in, in these tents we mourn and, and we suffer. He's talking about our bodies. Uh, that we would put on our heavenly dwelling. He says, not that we would be unclothed, referring to leaving behind the body, but that would be further clothed, that what we were designed to be will come to full fruition without sin. That's what we really hope for. That's what we really long for. Think about this for a second. In the new heavens and new earth, you will physically live on physical dirt with our God in a physical world with everyone else and a spiritual realm all united as one and you will not be able to sin and neither will anyone else. That is what God means when he says new creation. There will not be another fall. It won't be possible. He will remove from us everything to that. This is what it means, the fullest expression of what it means, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. It's not just that he saves people. He's going to rid the world of all sin. This is... Correct. 
right. and our sins. I, 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 I spoke on this last year, The Wonderful Wrath of God uh, was the sermon title, and I said one of the things I love about the wrath of God is that it will keep my sins in the grave. He will not allow me to raise sinful. This mortal must put on immortality. This fallible must put on infallibility. This sinful must put on immortality. It, 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 is, a, it is a remarkable promise. It is the hope of the Christian. In the middle of all these things, we'll just finish First Thessalonians. There's only one other reference here. Uh, go to the very closing. First Thessalonians 5. Uh, we'll start in 16. Now. Yeah. We'll start at the end of verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. Again, you're going to see the fruits of the Holy Spirit everywhere in his recommendations. Be at peace among yourselves. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, those who refuse to work, because they're expecting Christ to return any moment. There was a lot of people who quit their jobs and just sat around waiting. Admonish the idle, I-D-L-E, Encourage the faint-hearted, those who don't know if they have what it takes to make it through this world and this life. Encourage them. Come alongside them. Help the weak. Don't, don't condemn them for their weakness. Don't flaunt your strength in front of them. Help them. Be patient. There's another one of the fruits of the Spirit. Gentleness, patience, kindness, it's all in here. Be patient with them all. If, if the church is going to continue, it's going to need to be patient with one another. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Now we go outside the church. How do we interact with the world? If evil comes to us, do we do evil in return? No. Two rights does not make a wrong. Wait. Two wrongs do not make a right. It's the other way around. If someone does evil to you, doing evil back to them does not equal neutral ground. It destroys both you and them. Evil is not the way that God accomplishes his purposes, but suffering rightly in accordance with the will of God. Rejoice always. There's the joy part of the fruit of the Spirit. You say, how in the world do you do that? You don't. The Holy Spirit does. Pray without ceasing. A verse that many have used to put shackles onto their life and feel guilty for not doing it. It means the entire approach to life should be one of service to God and answering to the Lord. It does not mean, as many monasteries have tried to put, that we, 24 hours a day, are in prayer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That is one that has sat in my mind for many, many years and has been an absolute challenge to me, to see where the Holy Spirit is leading. Everyone wants to know where the Holy Spirit is leading. Here's one of them. Be thankful in all circumstances. Truly thankful. So what about sufferings? Boy, they make us patient. Thank you, God, for the patience from it. Why? For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. You want to know the will of God? Here it is. That's it. You say, fine, I'll do it myself. I'll be grateful, I'll be joyful, I'll be thankful. What does he follow up with? Don't quench the spirit. This ain't you. You're not the one doing this. You're not the one doing this. That's not how this works. The spirit of God 
did not need your consent to write scripture. You're not the reason why you have scripture. You're not the reason why the plan of God is working. You're not that important. God is. His purposes. His gospel. You intend to go to Asia, he'll turn you to Macedonia. Well, if you're an apostle, probably going to be verbal. If you're a Christian living in 2023, it's just going to be confusing sometimes. I wanted to do this, but I wasn't allowed to for some reason. It didn't happen. I couldn't make it happen. And if I forced this, it didn't have the outcomes that I wanted. Stay faithful. Patience. Be thankful at all points. For sufferings as well as times of ease. And God will bring about your righteousness. He does it. He said, well, that, that really removes it out of my hands. Yes. Because putting it in our hands quenches the spirit. This isn't about telling somebody to not speak in tongues. This is about quenching what the Spirit does. If we direct our lives, it will lead to death. If God directs it, it leads to life. And so what he's addressing here is don't, don't take away the very source of life to us, the very reason why we can be thankful in all circumstances. Don't pull back the reins of your life and say, I got this, no problem. I will be joyful, I will be patient, I will be peaceful, I will be thankful, you will immediately find yourself spiraling down to meaninglessness. You can't do that. And as a Christian, you're going to live with this cognitive dissonance. Two worlds trying to wrestle back and forth with one another. And what he's saying is, eventually, it can happen that you would actually quench the Spirit and not listen to him at all. You want to know what suffering is without thankfulness, you will find out. And it will drag you back in a way that you won't understand or appreciate. Verse 20, do not despise prophecies. We're still very early on in the church. There's still prophets in the church. Some of them talk about a famine that's coming next year. Some of them are addressing this. But the the broad message of the prophets is, here is what the Lord says. Again, scripture is still being written very early on. We're only three books in. And all of a sudden, he's talking about not despising prophecies. Again, they live at a time where there's not a New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, uh, 2 Thessalonians, anything other than Galatians, James, and 1 Thessalonians have not yet been written. So what he's talking about is the reality that the apostles, when they come to town, they preach the gospel, when they express the word of God, or when you read the Old Testament, don't despise any of this. This is how God is bringing life into the church. Test everything and hold fast to what is good. That's a great life verse if you need one. Abstain from every form of evil. And may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. It's a remarkable uh, benediction here. The God of peace sanctifies us. He makes us holy. That's what sanctify means. You say, well, sanctification, I kind of thought, you know, once you were saved, you just get to work. And you'll bring about your sanctification. Nope. You can't sanctify yourself. God, the God of peace, sanctifies us completely. You might be able to change an action here or there or have an accountability partner that changes an action here or there. You can't change the heart. This is what Paul is saying here. It's only the Spirit alone who can do these things. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body, and he leaves nothing out, he even uses the expanded biblical form of all three, even though most of the biblical forms just say soul and body. Here he goes, there's absolutely nothing that's not on the table. 
May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he who calls you is faithful. Him. He will surely do it. And then he puts them under oath to read this to all the brothers in the church. The teaching of the Holy Spirit continues into the church to teach them the reality that what they are struggling with is not unique. They're just the first generation of Christians. The questions that they're dealing with are not going to be unique. How do we handle Christians who die before us? We do it in grief and we do it in hope. Because in Christ, yeah, Good Friday was at first grief-stricken. And then we named it Good Friday for a reason. There's hope in it. There's life in it. And believe it or not, even in the death of his saints, at a time where we would not prefer it, is life-giving itself to us. Because the Holy Spirit will sanctify us completely in the midst of all of these things. You say, well, does that mean at some point in my life I become without sin and all is well and I don't have to see myself as the chief of sinners or any of these things? Nope. Paul hasn't even written this yet. That he, that God, in order to show his grace, would be graceful to Paul because he is the chief of sinners and he uses a present tense. Paul can only see his sin and Christ. He sees his sin as much more significant than any sin around him. That's a remarkable statement. It doesn't mean that his sins are objectively worse than someone else. It means to him, subjectively, his sins are the worst. He should know better. And yet he fails often. That is an encouragement to us, and it should continue to encourage us. Um, we'll come to this next week. We'll be in Second Thessalonians and then back to Acts and then to the Corinthians, which, if you're aware of 1 Corinthians, says so much about the Holy Spirit uh, that people take for normative in the Christian life and get all sorts of confused. So we're going to see if we can lay out 1 Corinthians, which I argue is the, next to the book of Rome, uh, Revelation, the most misinterpreted book of the New Testament. Um, we, will, we will come to that in the coming weeks. Okay, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the spirit that you have gifted to all of your saints. We thank you that all of this does not depend on our action or our understanding or how good we are at doing these things. But Father, it depends on your spirit who gives us life. We pray that we be, con uh, that we be confident in no one else that we do not depend on anyone else in the way that we depend on the Spirit of God. We thank you for him, his work in our midst. We pray that it be increasing and growing as the days go on. We pray it in your Son's name.